today on Ag News Daily. Sure. So I think I've been fairly vocal about a project we worked with in collaboration with a company called Recombinetics, where they were able to introduce an alteration that results in cows not growing horns. Welcome, listeners, to a Friday episode with Tanner Winterhoff alongside Delaney Howell. How are you doing, Delaney? I'm good, Tanner, but it's not really a Friday because it's raining once again here in central Iowa, meaning uh, that planting is just going to get further delayed. I was going to say, you can't just base your mood upon the weather, but that's Um, really hard not to do this time of year. I agree. (laughs) I agree. It is. And yesterday it was like 70 degrees. We cooked steaks. And today we woke up to this and it's blah. It's a good Friday. Like, you know, after you get through your work today, maybe mid-afternoon, just kind of retreat back and snuggle up with a good book or watch a movie or something. But I suppose you work at a bank, so you probably can't do that. Yeah, and I don't read books, so uh, <laughs> a couple of things don't work well for me there. But it will be a good day for me to catch up with my customers, maybe grab somebody for lunch, and uh, have a good time that way. But you know who isn't getting rain, Delaney? A lot of people. A lot of people aren't getting rain, yes. California, about 6 million Southern California residents near Los Angeles must restrict outdoor watering to one day a week. Starting June 1st, this is an unprecedented action unanimously adopted by the Metropolitan Water District's Board of Directors as they sent out a press release yesterday. This affects the people who rely on water from the Central Valley Project, the same project that delivers water to the San Joaquin Valley growers. So our growers down there coming out of the state water project severely will reduce the use of water as they have over the last three years, but this is by far the largest shortage that they have faced. And it's a pretty big deal out there. Headlines uh, are really grabbing attention. Headlines such as zero day and uh, no state water for California farms and California gets 0%. So uh, quite interesting to see the real dire strait that our friends and fellow farmers are experiencing over there in California. And Tanner, if I'm not mistaken, they're fighting to uh, source water against normal, just everyday consumers that are like trying to water their lawn and stuff too. Is that correct? That's correct. That's just crazy to me too, that to think that a person watering their lawn would get a day of water compared to someone that's trying to feed other people. Yeah, I really haven't uh, found the common sense in that. I'm sure there's a lot of equal rights type conversations that need to happen. But if I was a person wanting to water my grass and was at all aware of the situation, I would stop. Yeah, it's uh, certainly something to chew on a little. <laughs> but Tanner, the White House has some interesting legislation that was brought forth to them from Congress. The Biden administration is proposing to increase wheat loan rates by 63% to 5.52 per bushel, oil seeds by 40%, rice and pulses by 21%. And I'm sorry, I apologize, I got the headline wrong. The White House is calling on Congress to approve this because they said that they want to send some additional aid to Ukraine. And so they've proposed 
a plan to significantly boost some commodity loan rates for two years and extend the loan term from in 2022 to 12 months, as well as provide a $10 per acre incentive paid through crop insurance premiums to a soybean crop planted after a winter wheat crop in 2023. Now, Tanner, being a banker, you might be able to shed some light on what this increase to the commodity loans could do for farmers. So uh, it's an alternative source of financing and is typically driven off of a max loan amount based upon price per bushel. So you would turn in your crop insurance level that would guarantee a yield per acre. And then the commodity loan rate creates a maximum loan amount based upon a price. So what this article is telling you is, say the original price was at $3 and that 21% increase is going to move it up to $4. You now have an extra dollar per bushel times your number of acres farmed that you can borrow and use capital to put your crop in the ground or do expansion products or improve. So it's basically pumping liquidity into agricultural sectors who are using those commodity loan products. I will say, historically, because of the rise in prices, there are probably very few farmers that are utilizing this product currently because you cannot seek other financing because they are the ones that take first lien on your crop. So uh, a great headline. I don't see kind of like the uh, ethanol mandate without having the infrastructure in place. I don't see how this is directly going to have a large impact on agriculture. Okay. Well, that's good to know then, because I wasn't really sure how many farmers still used this loan program. And that was kind of my big question. Yeah. Typically when commodity prices are high, there's very few. Okay. Gotcha. Well, that was the non-piece of event news then. Well, it's still newsworthy because uh, it'll be interesting to track you know, that was the headline, the portion of the article. There's a lot of funds that are being uh, earmarked to that direction. So uh, not to be conspiracy theory, but if those funds are not used or advanced, they could be allocated and assigned elsewhere saying, oh, well, we earmarked them here to begin with. Now we can utilize them for X, Y, and Z. Got it. Okay. I have uh, a little bit more weather news before I jump into other topics, but uh, we're still experiencing red flag warnings in much of the Southern Plains. So we started in California, but now we're talking about uh, Southwestern Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, you know, the conversations we had this week, still experiencing 30 to 45 mile per hour winds, humidity as low as 9%. So very warm, very dry, very windy. And kind of like our guest had stated, if you get a lightning strike or you get any type of an accidental spark, uh, certainly going to make fire travel very, very quickly. It certainly is. And I've been continuing to just read stories about farmers dealing with these wind conditions, high wind speeds, you know, causing drought, wildfires, etc. And folks, I would encourage you, if you haven't listened to Wednesday's podcast, go back and at least re-listen to the interview with that. We chatted with Chase Sini, who is a cattle rancher and feed yard manager down in Stratford, Texas. And he really shares some perspective about how this year compares to other years that they've seen as far as dryness goes as well. So I'll just give a quick plug for that episode, Tanner, because I thought it was a pretty good one. I think it is worth the plug. And uh, 
the guest, of course, as usual, was nervous to begin with and knocked it out of the park. So much deserving. Absolutely. Well, speaking of Texas, this is a bad segue, Danner, but a former USDA <laughs> inspector has pleaded guilty to taking more than $40,000 in bribes at the Mexico-Texas border. Roberto Adams from Laredo, Texas, was the lead animal health technician at the crossing and was apparently not doing his job to check cattle passing into the U.S. from Mexico and making sure that they met all necessary health requirements. Court records apparently show that he admitted to taking money from Mexican cattle brokers to let cattle into the United States without proper inspection, and this went on for more than a year, Tanner. He will be sentenced during his hearing set in August and could be fined up to $250,000 or 15 years in jail. Oh, that doesn't pay, does it? (laughs) No, not particularly. You're $40,000. You should ask for more, Roberto. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I was trying to quickly search here, Delaney, for more updates on uh, the congressional hearings around meatpacking and the conversations they had with their CEOs. And it just seems like things kind of went a little bit quiet uh, as far as progress goes. Of course, CEOs are still asking for cattle producers to do business as usual, uh, that this is not a corrupt system, that it is to continue to push forward. Uh, but had you caught anything else along those types of conversations or seen any articles about that, Delaney? The only thing that I just briefly read this morning on a article I found on Twitter was that kind of there were two asks from the producer front. Some producers were asking for a full transparency in the cash prices and others were So this is where I can't remember exactly what they were asking, but some producers were asking for something else completely. Uh, I think something along the lines of, you know, more local competition. So it seems like from a producer front and also from a policy standpoint, we're getting some mixed reviews on really what the end goal should be here. Yeah. I mean, I have seen over and over the, the recording, the headline of the question, you know, was there ever an agreement between the big four to cooperate together on issues impacting supplier pricing? And it kept getting asked and asked again. And all of uh, the packing representatives responded with a very simple no. Uh, right. Nobody elaborated. Nobody went on and, and continued to go any further out. But I agree. It's interesting to find a united front almost on how we're going to investigate and push this if the answers can just continue to be acceptable in very short segments. Right. So I would assume at some point, you know, hopefully somebody will kind of do a full recap of what's happened the last couple of days. Yeah, I think, um, I think it'll be again, something that we should really pay attention to uh, as we get to see what the story looks like and unfolds. Absolutely. But another thing I just was picking up on this morning here was that the Renewable Fuels Association has been concerned lately about how poor rail service has been and said that it's having a negative impact on the entire ethanol industry. They shared some testimony at the Surface Transportation Board on April 22nd, and the board is has been set to meet earlier this week. I haven't seen what's come out of that, but essentially they were asking for help with, 
the infrastructure to support the transportation of ethanol where it needs to go. They said the majority of ethanol produced in the U.S., over 70% is actually transported via railway to its final destination across the lower 48 states, as well as Canada and Mexico, and that they've seen significant rail delays here, and that was really impacting ethanol's profitability. But Tanner, unfortunately, I feel like a lot of industries are in that same boat, so I'm not sure that ethanol is really anything special compared to other industries that are also facing this challenge. Yeah, I agree, and I think we reported back uh, a couple of weeks ago on how much excess rail inventory there was, rail car inventory compared to staff uh, to help transport goods in all industries. I think you're seeing that too. Amazon went away from one-day delivery in certain areas to multi-day. Um, I agree. From food to goods to commodities, I think it's all across the board. Certainly, it seems like it's that way, at least. And it's not only here in the United States. You know, we continue to talk about Russia, Ukraine, all of those countries having the same issues as well. Absolutely. I am out of news this morning. Do you have any other news to contribute, Delaney, before we jump into the markets? Uh, No, I think all my news related here is just a little commentary as we look at commodity markets and where they are trading here. Heading into the opening session, we certainly saw... Pretty good export sales numbers yesterday. We kind of hit the mark as far as where the USDA was expecting us to be right on track for the marketing year. We also saw really solid demand for old and new crop soybeans and corn, both, uh, but primarily corn, that China has continued to step into the marketplace and buy. So certainly news there that that is continuing to support the market, as well as this piece of news, Tanner, that basis has softened in Brazil and has made it competitive again for the summer shipping season, as well as to do business with the United States. Um, so we certainly have a lot of factors here playing out, as well as one final piece of news here as we kind of look at where the overnights are today. You know, wheat's really trying to find its footing, determining how much wheat is going to pre- going to be produced globally. And as we continue to talk, Tanner, about canola and wheat in Canada. We talk about wheat production here in the United States. Spring wheat, hard red spring wheat, which is the Minneapolis contract, accounts for about 11 million acres in Canada, or excuse me, in the United States, and about 17 million acres in North Dakota and South Dakota. And so there's a lot of question marks right now about really how much spring wheat is going to be able to be planted just due to the fact that it's wet or it's extremely dry in a lot of these areas and they may not be able to get in and get planted. And so uh, one analyst I was reading this morning said that really we've got the next three weeks here to make or break it for that spring wheat crop up in the Dakotas before producers will likely have to choose their prevent plant option. So definitely a story that is continuing to unravel that we really need to pay attention to. But as you look at the overnights here this morning, we're seeing mixed trade in the grain markets as soybeans are higher across the board. Corn and wheat are actually lower this morning. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays through here into Friday and how we trade heading into the weekend. In the protein markets, we're also seeing some mixed trade this morning as live cattle are trading lower, feeder cattle higher, and lean hogs trading mixed, Tanner. So that's where we're at here this morning, heading into opening markets. 
Yeah, that is interesting because I know when I looked this morning, both corn, especially in the front months, both corn and wheat were up to see that that's already transitioned since when I woke up this morning. Absolutely. They tri- they're, they've been volatile lately, Tanner, I tell you. Most certainly. Well, I'm going to take a selfish moment here to uh, push the Farm for Profit podcast that I also co-host. Uh, we have a episode that all the reason I'm doing this is a little bit timely for coming out Monday. So we got to speak with uh, Jason Webster of Precision Planting about the benefits of rolling your soybeans. So that's the conversation mm. that comes out on Monday. Uh, it could be something that uh, we can report back here again to our listeners, but uh, very intelligent, very unbiased research that was done on that side of things. I know as we get later, Delaney, into the planting season that um, we may have to forego some of the tasks we would if we had a regular, uh, regular planting time window and certainly might not want to be rolling if you're a farmer that has rolled in the past or is looking into rolling for the first time this year. So uh, a great episode. We're really happy with that. It's a pretty short one in relative to ours too, but check out Farm for Profit. That's the number four, Farm for Profit, and uh, give Jason Webster some time to learn about studies he did around rolling your soybeans. All right. Well, good plug there, Tanner. That sounds like an interesting interview. I'll be sure to check it out myself. But speaking of interviews, today's interview here on the Ag News Daily Podcast is with a familiar voice. It's been quite some time since we've had her on, but Dr. Allison Van Enenem of UC Davis to talk about the new CRISPR-Kill technology, Tanner. So let's turn it over to that conversation. Well, Delaney, I'm excited to gain some knowledge today. Because if we remember back to a couple weeks ago, I pulled up that article about the CRISPR kill technology, and I, I kind of announced that I had very little CRISPR understanding. Uh, so this will be a good conversation, I think, coming up as to helping myself and our listeners learn more about it. Who's our guest today? Absolutely. We're chatting with Dr. Allison Van Enenem, who's a professor of cooperative extension at UC Davis. Allison, we've had you on the podcast, but it's been a little while, so we certainly appreciate you joining us today to talk about CRISPR technology because this is really where you have created your niche and are kind of, in my opinion, the CRISPR expert to go to to answer different questions on this technology. So thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks, Delaney. I'm not sure I'm the expert, but I I certainly do work in it as it relates to livestock and food, food and animal species. So I'll, I'll take that niche. Um, and maybe there's some other people, I don't know, Jennifer Dunner, for example, that probably have a little more expertise in this area for other applications. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, regardless, we're going to call you an expert because you definitely know way more than probably the average person about CRISPR technology. And as Tanner was mentioning, we'll talk about that CRISPR kill technology and kind of your thoughts on it here a little bit, but CRISPR technology as a whole, give us the 10,000 foot view of what this technology is and why it was created initially. So simply put, it's a very sophisticated pair of molecular scissors. (laughs) Um, And what it enables researchers to do is introduce a targeted double-stranded break in the DNA double helix. You're all familiar with the um, double helix, and there's three billion base pairs that make up cattle or human genomes. And basically, CRISPR enables us to make a targeted double-strand cut. In other words, you can go to a specific location amongst those 10 billion base pairs and say, okay, 
Mr. Um, Cassanine make a double-stranded cut right here. Um, and you might want to do that to, for example, inactivate a gene um, that maybe makes animals susceptible to disease and therefore they would no longer be susceptible to that disease. And so it enables us to introduce useful genetic variations into the genome, um, in my case, of uh, livestock species. So is this a technology that's only used in livestock? Oh my gosh, no. It has, you know, tremendous potential in many other fields and, and particularly, I think, human medicine. We've seen, um, the technology being used to, um, actually cure some genetic diseases, um, like sickle cell anemia. Um, and I think there's a lot of, uh, hope for therapeutic applications, uh, in some, in, in basically, um, all, in, in many different aspects of human medicine. It's also used um, for potentially also things like containment of um, insects and microbes. And uh, it's basically, if, if you can think of a useful application of introducing an alteration in the DNA of an organism, then this would be a, a really useful tool to use for that. But you mentioned, Allison, that you specifically focus on livestock uh, abilities to edit genetics. What have you guys been working on recently at UC Davis that you can share with us? Sure. So I think I've been fairly vocal about a project we worked with in collaboration with a company called Recombinetics, where they were able to introduce an alteration that results in cows not growing horns. Um, and that might sound so what? Well, horns, for those of you not familiar and have, haven't been on the business end of horns, um, are quite dangerous to both the animals and their handlers. And in dairy cattle breeds particularly, um, animals are typically grow horns. Uh, and as a result, um, producers will actually manually remove the horns, usually through applying either heat or um, a, a, a caustic paste to the calves when they're very little. And this is a painful procedure that neither the calf nor the dairy farmer enjoys. And there's actually a naturally occurring genetic variation that is present, for example, in Angus cattle, that is a dominant trait that results in not growing horns. And so what the company did was introduce that particular variant into dairy cattle background and produced a bull that doesn't grow horns. Um, and because it's a dominant trait, and the bull was actually homozygous for that trait, so both copies of that gene were were not growing horns, he passed that on to the offspring we produced here at Davis. And we just just this month have a paper coming out in Gen Biotechnology where we basically followed those animals through their lifetime um, and looked at their health and their meat composition and the milk composition and found that they were normal in every way except they didn't grow horns. Um, and so this would be a really useful trait to introduce, for example, into elite dairy cattle germplasm um, that would enable farmers to no longer have to dehorn the animals, which would be good for the animals and good for the farmers. Um, so that's a project that we've been quite involved with. That's exciting. And I, I didn't know which direction you were going to go. I, I entered this conversation with an open mind to, to learn right aside. And that seems like a very valuable use of the technology. Uh, but the reason Delaney reached out to you to begin with is I did a very poor job of reporting on a new CRISPR technology called CRISPR-Kill. And before our conversation started, you had some, some interesting comments about how certain terminology in your industry had been used in the past and the development of that. Would you be able to share that with our listeners? 
Yeah, sure. So um, CRISPR-Kill is, is kind of an approach to limit the spread of an intentional alteration that's been introduced through genome editing. And it's it's kind of ironic for me. And, and so this is being um, proposed for things like perhaps insect populations or um, mice populations or microbial biocontainment. And that term biocontainment is a term that's been used for many years to kind of limit the spread, for example, of um, genomic alterations. And, and historically, it's been used as it relates to genetically engineered or transgenic organisms. And I'm old enough to remember when <clears throat> genetic engineering was first being introduced, there was actually a scientist at the USDA who introduced a biocontainment approach that became known as the terminator technology, which basically was a way to limit the spread of transgenes through pollen flow. And it would basically result in um, plants not being able to have fertile pollen. And so it would, the transgenic um, wouldn't be able to spread for example, to neighboring crops, maybe that didn't want the transgene present. Um, and at the time, there was a great big outcry, um, particularly from some of the groups opposed to genetic engineering, um, kind of saying, oh my gosh, this is terrible. It's going to make, you know, the seeds sterile and, and we don't want the terminator technology. And so the industry turned away from this, um, biocontainment approach um, on the basis of the the concerns from some of the groups opposed to genetic engineering. But now it's something that's being proposed as something that has to be uh, implemented as it relates to genome editing. And I feel a little bit like Groundhog Day and it's like, well, hang on, <laughs> you know, 20 years ago, that was a really bad thing. And now it's kind of being proposed as you have to have this or else, um, you know, we'll have uncontrolled spread of these genomic alterations. And I guess in my case, it's not such a, a concern because, you know, we just have good fences <laughs> and that really controls <laughs> who our cows or bulls breed with. Um, and so in the case of animal breeders, um, you know, we are more or less determining uh, where their seed spreads, so to speak, uh, as distinct right. from pollen. And so um, good fences make good neighbours and um, it's not such a concern because we really are controlling where the intentional alteration goes. But for example, if we did introduce that pole trait, the not growing horn trait into dairy cattle genetics, the way that that would be kind of disseminated to industry would probably be through AI, artificial insemination, and you'd have very elite dairy bulls that would produce thousands of straws of semen, and then it would be very intentionally introduced to um, females uh, at, at breeding um, when they showed estrus, and that's how the, the um, that particular alteration would be spread. But it doesn't really offer a competitive advantage to the animal, I mean, other than not having horns it, it's not like it's going to spread um uncontrolled through the population it would be something that would be introduced by dairy farmers and breeders so i know it's not your area of expertise but i'm trying to wrap my head around the the concept so for example uh here in the central united states a lot of our farmers are battling weeds that are resistant to chemicals and weeds that grow much faster than their crops such as water hemp is this a technology that could be potentially introduced into uh, plants as such to, like you said, keep the spread of pollen. Could that even go into a weed seed? Yeah, so certainly over? that's that's a, something that's been proposed for nuisance species, and I'll include weeds in that. I also would include rodents in certain um, environments uh, where they're perhaps eating the eggs of um, endangered 
birds like on Hawaii Island and New Zealand has a bunch of rodents. Actually, some of their pests are imported from a large uh, continent nearby um, that maybe I have a little bit of affinity to Australia. So I guess the Australian possums got over to New Zealand and they're eating all of their native bird eggs and things. So they're a real pest. And oh, so it's been yeah. proposed to use some of these biocontainment methods to basically spread um, um, the sterility through those animals so that they're no longer able to um, procreate and, and to protect the native populations. And so there's always a yin and a yang there in terms of, well, we want to get rid of the rodents, but let's just say there's a, a technology introduced that makes, I don't know, mouse mice infertile. Um, what if that technology spread to mice that in other locations or, or insects? And so there's always kind of the, the unintended consequences concern right. when it comes to these kind of broad ranging, um, you know, biocontainment methods. But there's also the, well, if we don't do anything about it, you know, we keep on poisoning these animals, which is what currently is done with a lot of pests um, or in the case of weeds, you know, herbicides, it, it, there's always a trade-off associated with not implementing a genetic solution to these problems. And I guess I'm a geneticist. I realize I have a vested interest, but to me, a genetic solution to some of these problems is better than the current solution of, of either letting the weeds take over the crop, in which case there's no food for humans, or spraying the heck out of whatever it is to try to control it um, to allow the, the human food crop to be grown. So if somebody like myself is curious about wanting to learn more about CRISPR technology. Do you have any good resources that we might be able to tap into if we do want to expand our knowledge? Um, well, there's, that's, a, that's a big question because there's so many different <laughs> aspects. Um, you know, there's a, there's a couple of uh, good um, um, documentaries that have been made around this. Uh, the Netflix uh, series is called Unnatural Selection. Um, and then there's also a movie called Human Nature that's available on Netflix. Um, and both of those, I think, do a good job at, at discussing some of the ethics and um, history of, of CRISPR. And in both of those cases, they really focus on the human medicine applications, um, more so than the agricultural applications, which I think are very interesting. But uh, if it, it also, oh, there's also a Nova series. If you actually want to see um, some of our cattle, there was a Nova series they did, um, which uh, featured some of our cattle. Uh, and that was called um, CRISPR Gene Editing Reality Check. Uh, and that came out in September of 2020. And if you want to see some of our CRISPR edited uh, cows, you can uh, watch that uh, series. Yeah, fantastic. We certainly will share those uh, show notes with our listeners and on social media as well. But Dr. Van Enenem, certainly appreciate you coming on today. And it's always fun. You're very passionate. It's evident about this technology. And it's fun to to learn from you through these conversations. A long list of resources. I appreciate <laughs> that. I can't. I And I, it sounds nerdy of me, but I can't wait to actually tune in. Because I'm curious, and I'm sure there's a lot of people just like me that are curious um, about that. So we really appreciate your time and for sharing a little bit of your knowledge today with I, us I would and our listeners. Highly recommend the Gene Editing Reality Check Nova series because the uh, the reporter came out from San Francisco to see the cows, and he wore white tennis shoes. <laughs> and I don't need to tell you what happened, but you know exactly what happened on a farm, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was actually a pretty funny episode.
Fantastic. We'll be sure to check that out. And thanks again. Okay. All right. Thanks for the interview. Well, Delaney, that was a follow-up, of course, as we mentioned in there, on an article that I had reported on and brought to our listeners a couple of weeks ago. Uh, certainly still don't fully understand all of it, but I'm glad we have some resources now that we can go out and dive into a little bit deeper. Absolutely, Tanner. I always learn a lot, and I love uh, chatting with Allison. She's really good, I think, at explaining it so everyone can understand. Yeah, most certainly. Well, Tanner, I tell you what, that wraps up another great week of great content here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. But if folks miss us over the weekend, they can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. With that, Tanner, should we let the people go? Let's let the people go. Let's let the people go.